So, when a tanker is stopped and refuelling a service station, does it actually churn up the water and sediment in the big underground tanks? And is it therefore a good idea to steer clear of that filling station forecourt, lest you suck all of that junk into yo engine and give yo injectors an acute case of cerebrovascular in pants poopy? The answer to this somewhat burning question is next. I'm John Cadogan from autoexpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. <laughs> for buyers here in Australia. Website for that, obviously, or you can just stick your, let's call it, uh, pointer on the card that is up there now, dude. See what happens. It'll be our little secret. You might even enjoy it. Christ knows I will. Bonus additional question at the end too. Why Scotty, rev up your engines, Kilmer, the Ron Jeremy of YouTube mechanics, and I, the Ron Jeremy of YouTube industry antichrists, apparently disagree over BMW. Him, endless money pit, me, yeah, dude, definitely worth buying. That's coming up. But first, today's Q&A is from the Department of Plausible Sounding Ideas, which are also bullshit. Like that myth about two identical cars going head to head, each at 100 k's an hour, and the senior beard stroker sitting there gazing into the fire at Dingo Piss Creek on his 22nd VB of the day, so probably only about 6pm or something, telling the young blokes... It's the same thing as hitting a brick wall at 200, because obviously 100 plus 100 equals 200, right? Meanwhile, in other news, Geoscience UK detects a subterranean vibration consistent with something spinning at about 6,000 RPM, apparently radiating out from Sir Isaac Newton's Grave. I'm always hesitant to fill up my car with diesel or petrol after watching the tankers pumping fuel into the main tanks of the servo. I remember many years ago when I was a young apprentice, my boss saying, never fill up when you see this, as potentially a lot of dirt and water will be stirred, and that certainly does your engine little good. In this modern age, is there any truth to this? That question, and it is rather a good one. From Gaza Balaza. Look me in the eye and tell me that's not the best Aussie porn star name ever. For complete disambiguation on this, our Gaza Balaza is not a porn star, at least not that I'm aware of. He has a proper job, apparently. I'm just saying, starring Gaza Balaza has a certain, let's call it, uh, box office appeal. I'd watch that. Now, sadly, Gaza, I think your old boss, God rest his soul, was blowing water and sediment up your RS, dude, because this concept does not hold up under objective scrutiny. For starters, the decanting rate of the fuel from a tanker to the underground tanks is really not all that fast, and this is mainly to minimise static electricity because... Fuel flowing in a hose generates its own static, which is bad in context. 
They do earth the tanker, of course, and everything is so carefully managed that the general public has no friggin' idea that a giant mobile petrol bomb has just driven up to and is parked on top of several even bigger underground Molotov cocktails. Nor do they understand that this process is occurring when those underground bombs are in their most potentially dangerous state because they're mainly filled with explosive vapour. So that's kind of entertaining, hidden in plain sight like that. <laughs> I think you'd agree. It's a miracle that this does not make the news at least once a week, given the amount of mayhem that has to be systematically managed out of the system. The relatively low flow rate through a pretty big hose means that the speed of that fuel is not that high when it enters the tank, which means that the reduced energy of the flow doesn't actually tune and churn up the fuel already in the tank, at least not all that much. Plus, every Bowser on the forecourt has a filter, let's not forget. This catches contaminants greater than 10 microns, which is one one hundredth of a millimetre. If any contamination from any source actually makes it into your car's fuel tank, unlikely, it probably sinks without a trace into that dead zone of inaccessible fuel below the pump pickup, which is why that space is designed to be in there in the first place. And if any actually gets into the fuel line, even more unlikely, cars have fuel filters for that and service intervals for them. Furthermore, I'm kind of struggling to see where sediment in the underground tank would actually come from. Every time the fuel is transferred from one tank to another along the whole supply chain, it gets filtered. So it's not coming in there from the fuel. And the underground tanks themselves at servos are designed not to corrode. This is a legislated requirement, right? There's even a whole mandatory Australian standard called AS4897-2008 Design, Installation and Operation of Underground Petroleum Storage Systems, bit of a mouthful, and the whole thing is carefully worked out by full-tilt propeller-headed engineering experts. The tanks and all the piping are legally required to be made of non-corrodible material. If they are steel, they're cathodically protected and condition monitored, so they can't rust. There's overfill protection, leak protection and secondary containment, things like that. So those tanks are absolutely not generating their own sediment internally. Internal condensation might be a factor, but water is pretty easy to separate from fuel because it's not miscible and it's so much heavier, so it just sinks to the bottom of the tank. And I guess we have to say that water is somewhat miscible in E10, but in that case, it would pass harmlessly into the engine. The conclusion here is that this is definitely a non-problem. Okay, it's confirmed by the fact that there's no pandemic of cars just failing in service simply because they unwittingly filled up at exactly that wrong time, that Goldilocks wrong time, when the tanker was on the forecourt churning the tank below. Bastard. If this actually happened, they would mandate the servo shut down during and for a period of time after every refill. 
now this from Don Zemanski. How is it you love BMWs and Scotty Kilmer calls them endless money pits with cheap plastic engine manifolds and parts? Donny, Donny, Donny. Don't get me wrong, dude. I do get a little rev up in my, uh, let's call it engine, every time I watch a Scotty Kilmer video. And he's had over a billion views, so that's amazing. And I love Scotty as much as the next dude. Dudes want him and chicks want to be him. Like, hey, I get that. But I think we're coming at this from different angles, right? I'm talking to people buying brand new cars, generally. And some of them have made a choice to buy a premium car. And this is hardly ever rationally defensible, and not just with cars. But at the same time, I get the aspiration to own a premium product. Like, it's a thing. It's like buying a Rolex instead of a friggin' Casio, right? The mighty G-Shock is actually cheaper and tougher and more accurate, and it does more things, but still not a Rolex, is it? Actually, that's kind of a bad analogy now that I think about it, because if you pay five times more for a BMW, you actually get a lot more car. An M3 is a lot more car, objectively, than an i30N. A Rolex is objectively less of a watch, except, of course, as a status symbol. But anyway, my assessment for new car buyers is that BMW is a better choice than Mercedes, for example, because here in Australia, three-prong is a specialist at throwing customers under the bus. And those... Uh those criminals at Audi, which is, of course, part of the Volkswagen Death Star empire, I find it difficult to trust them also. Call me old-fashioned. Look, here in the Antipodean third world, right, BMW actually does a pretty good job looking after its customers. That's been my first-hand experience, and I do have my ear to the ground on this, right? Lots of anecdotal evidence in support of that. None to the contrary. We also enjoy consumer law protection here for something like 10 years or 160,000 Ks, which legally mandates warranty-like protection, i.e. free repairs, if vehicles prove not to be reasonably durable within that time frame. And obviously over in the United States of Scotty, they don't get that. After the warranty evaporates in America... You're kind of on your own, dude. I think the engine rever comes at this issue from the point of view of somebody thinking about buying a used BMW for kind of the same price as a new Mazda or Toyota or something. The reality here is that all cars get less reliable as they age and the risk of major component failure increases with each passing year. And although premium cars depreciate heavily, so they become affordable to buy fairly quickly, the cost of replacement parts for them absolutely remains premium. So let's say you buy a 12-year-old M3 that four different owners have thrashed mercilessly from time to time, and you're driving along one day, the transmission goes in pants poopy because it's old and it's been thrashed, then, dude, the replacement cost is likely to be, let's be kind, stratus-fucking-ferric. It just is. 
a replacement sapphire crystal for a Rolex Submariner, which is like a 25, 30 grand watch or something, it's likely to cost more than three brand new G-Shocks. Does that make the Rolex an endless money pit? Probably. Old Rolexes don't typically depreciate like old BMWs, however, so they remain reasonably inaccessible to the budget watch buyer. So that's a point of difference. An old Submariner is not really, therefore, an alternative to a new G-Shock in the way that an old M3 is an alternative to a new i30N or something. And finally, on this business of, quote, cheap plastic engine manifolds, etc., Riddle me this, okay? How exactly is a plastic intake manifold a disadvantage? If it functions as well as a cast aluminium manifold and it's lighter and just as durable, what exactly is the problem? It makes the car better, dude. The issue here is conflating plastic with cheap, which it is not, at least it doesn't have to be, it's not always the case. Glass-reinforced nylon, which is the typical intake manifold plastic, it's hardly cheap in the context of quality, durability or performance. And I note that nobody is accusing power tool manufacturers of using quote-unquote cheap plastic bodies for their power tools, at least not anymore. It's also pretty interesting to me that Porsche has been using plastic intake manifolds since the 1970s and nobody appears to be kneeing them in the friggin' cashews over that. Anyway, the biggest problem with plastic intake manifolds, at least of which I am aware, tends to be noise transmission, because the walls are thinner, and you have to attenuate that through some other mechanism in R&D. But that's not really an owner concern, that's more an engineer concern. Anyway, overall... I agree with Scotty's take on this generally, except for the plastics being cheap thing. If you buy something like a high K X5M used, and you buy it for the same price as a brand new Santa Fe or Sorento or CX9 or something, and then the transmission makes a loud, unpleasant noise before demanding to see its lawyer, you probably will form the view that it's become an endless money pit. Scotty and you and me would agree in that circumstance, right? But if you buy a new X5M and you own it for five years or something and then you go again, you're probably going to love it.